Things you may not have noticed in politics, but probably should. I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts, including on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube, joined as always by my co-host, former Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. One of our very favorite columnists working today is the Washington Post's Philip Bump. He specializes in pointing out fresh angles in the political news and using data and, you know, facts to sift through what people are saying, to separate what's real from what's not, or to be a little earthier about this and trigger warning for our delicate-eared listeners that you may hear this word a few times in this episode, Philip is one of the great experts in America in sorting the truth from the bullshit. Like Paul and I used to be, Philip's based in New York City. He writes the weekly newsletter, How to Read This Chart, to which you should subscribe to adopt the correct English on his Washington Post bio. He's also the author of the book, The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Paul, your last days are here. Sorry about that. It's already happened. (laughs) Your last days are behind you. I am so over. Why are you still here, I guess, is the question. Philip, welcome to Beyond Politics. Of course. Thank you. So before we get into your analysis or your charts or current issues or any of that, and we have a lot of your writing to get into, I want to ask you about what you do. Holy smokes. You put out three to four pieces a day, about 1,500 words per. And look, we've had a lot of great columnists on this show. Will Bunch of the Philly Inquirer and Rex Hopke of USA Today, they put out maybe two or three columns a week. I had a Washington, a Newsweek op-ed piece that I did a couple months back that was a thousand words. And I was really excited for myself when I got it out in about 90 minutes or so. I don't think many people realize how remarkable what you're doing is. So I guess my first question is, how many Oompa Loompas do you have working for you in your factory? And my second question is, how did you get into this mode of turning out so much analysis? Is there just so much out there that needs to be flagged and explained and so much BS to be sorted through? Or is this kind of the work mode that you wanted as you became a columnist? Uh, it's a fair question, and it's one that we tend to end up in places in our lives without a lot of self-reflection, so I haven't done a lot of self-reflection in regards to that particular answer, but I, I can just walk through my career trajectory, which is, first of all, I just I talk fast, and I, I move fast, and this is part and parcel of who I am to write quickly as well, but I've also been doing this a long time. I started, I've been at The Post almost 10 years now. Before that, I worked for The Atlantic Wire, which was a news-oriented site affiliated with The Atlantic Magazine uh, that involved a lot of the same sort of quick analyses of what's happening in the news. My my niche at The Washington Post is fairly specific to thing happens offer context for thing. That I do a lot of data-driven stuff makes that easier because it means I don't have to wait for comment. I can just dig into the poll numbers. I don't need to get a comment from the pollster before before I present poll numbers when I pull Census Bureau data and things along those lines. So those two things, three things, I guess I should say, you know, just having done this for more than a decade, that I do so much stuff that's rooted in data and not having to wait for calls back from people, and that I just by nature tend to do things quickly. That's what you get, and hopefully it is. The occasions on which I have moved so quickly that I end up being like, oh, that was embarrassing and I should have given it more thought are very gratefully few and far between. So it it seems to work out. But they'd exist. Let me just be very clear. They do. On the show yesterday, we were talking about Matt's Newsweek column from last week, where he argued that the Republican Party has one last chance to save itself and stop Trump. I suggested out of the blue that there's one Republican who I thought could do more than anyone else to do that, and that is Mitch McConnell. But that's before he had another one of his frozen 
moments. And I'm not trying to be partisan pointing this out. There have been similar issues with Senator Feinstein, of course. But what are you seeing in terms of McConnell, his ability to lead the Republican Party and the overall situation where we have important government leaders, McConnell, Feinstein, I'm thinking back to RBG, who seem to be so physically compromised. What does that spell for McConnell and the Republican Party, especially? Well, I think there's two different issues you've raised there. The first is McConnell's specific role within the party, and the second is the fact that he's older in a position of authority. So dealing with the first point first, McConnell is fascinating because he has served as this bulwark of traditional republicanism against the rising tide of MAGAism, or I should say the the tsunami that already has overswept over the country that is MAGAism. It's important that to remember that he is also the minority leader of the minority of the less voluble and frankly less broadly important arm of Congress. The House is traditionally speaking, the Senate was built to keep the House in check. But in the era of the internet and conservative media, the House drives the agenda, that drives the conversation. And so McConnell is the leader of the subset of Congress that is already largely sidelined within the political conversation. And as such, while he maintains the ability or until as of speaking, he's maintaining the ability to keep senators in check. That doesn't do a whole lot of good in terms of keeping the House in check or Trump in check. And I think everyone involved, including McConnell, is aware of that limitation. To your broader point about the the faculties of older Americans, it was mentioned that I just wrote this book about the baby boom. And when I say last days, I'll point out we're talking decades. It is technically all of our last days if we really want to get esoteric about it. But the this idea that we have this unusually old population of leaders is obviously accurate. It is also obviously a function of the fact that there was this baby boom that existed from 1946, 1964. And if you, the year in which the most births occurred during the baby boom was 1957, add 65 to 1957 and you get 2022, right? So it was last year that the greatest number of people born during the baby boom were reaching retirement age. So we have this older population. And what we also have is we have this natural tendency that some portion of the population just wants to stay at their job and not not move into retirement. And if you think about it in the broad context of the American population, if you say that for every year, 10% of those age 65 and older are simply not going to retire, if you have this massive population of people who are 65 and older, you're going to have more people who are sticking around in their jobs than you normally would have, and thereby blocking someone else from having that job. And so I think there's an aspect of this that is simply because there are so many older people, you end up with more people staying in power past the point at which it might be physically recommended. And again, none of us wants to cast aspersions on any of these leaders, but it does seem as though maybe the time had come at some point in the past for people to retire. And well, I think the challenge that they have is now they have to come to terms with what their legacy is going to be by having not done so. I'm also thinking about what happened with the Democrats in the House. When I served, Nancy Pelosi and Steny and Jim Clyburn were already older than I was. They got a lot older than I was in the 15 years or so or whatever. Funny how that works. Sure. Since I left, it's amazing. I never thought it was going to happen. And look at what, but I mean, they effectuated a reasonable transition without necessarily having been pushed out in a bad, in an ugly way. And the question is whether or not McConnell is going to see that and there's going to be that kind of transition. And if he's to go, who's behind him? Do we then get a MAGA Republican Senate leader? I think that the 
what happened with the Democrats after they lost control of the majority in last year's midterms is instructive, in part because it reflects the broader trends. One of the reasons that occurred is because Democrats, unlike Republicans, need to retain the loyalty of young voters. And so one of the messages they want to send is, we hear you. We know Joe Biden is very old. We understand that you are champing at the bit to have power economically and politically in this country. We are sending a message to you, our loyal constituents. We got you. We're going to bring in this younger generation. Granted, it's Gen X. They're not particularly young by the standard of the American population, but that was hey, another Friday That was essential. Hey, look, I feel pretty confident. I'm Gen X. I, I can say this. Yeah, we're young, uh, man. Sure. You're on the way out. You're, oh, yeah. We're past our peak, too. Hell. You're done. That's it. So what happens after McConnell is gone, assuming McConnell goes? The Senate still is, and the Senate Republican caucus still is not where the House Republican caucus is. And so it seems likely to me that you may have a challenge. Look at who challenged him last time was Rick Scott. And Rick Scott is MAGA-esque. He wants to appeal to that same group of people, but he's also Rick Scott. And he's just, he's just, he's this awkward, nerdy guy. He's not a fire breather like Matt Gates or anything like that. So I don't think it'll be Rick Scott. It does seem to me more likely to be someone like Warren Doom, someone who is already in that line, just because... A, that's how the Senate works, and B, the Senate Republican Caucus is not. They're not so rebellious as the House Republican Caucus. First of all, I just have to call out the fact that there's probably a reason why I've been a longtime fan of Philip Bumps, right? You could hear it in one of your sentences before when you referred to champing at the bit, which, of course, George Carlin would approve of that because that is the correct usage, people. It's not chomping. Second of all, I would like to now do something dangerous, which is I want to try to invade your wheelhouse. I'm going to attempt a dot connection exercise, which is your like Aaron Sorkin walk and talk. You're super good at this. I'm not as good at it. I want to connect the dots between a couple of things that you wrote. A few days ago, you wrote that Republicans have already achieved a desired impeachment outcome because new polling, according to YouGov, shows that Biden and his family are now viewed as corrupt by only a slightly smaller portion of the public than are Donald Trump and his family. And of course, this is a situation where we can euphemistically say there is an asymmetry of facts that is not really a supported outcome, or as you put it in a piece that you wrote back on August 9th. So where's the bribe, James Comer? There's been a lot of gauzy rhetoric thrown out about the Biden crime family that's just, there's no there there. Okay, so those are the dots. Here's where I'm leading to. How is the media doing? It strikes me that you're making a valiant effort. This is your raison d'etre, is to connect those dots, point out those facts, and try to alleviate the fact-free zone that we seem to be operating in. It seems to me to be the function of the media, as our previous guest Mark Jacobs said, provide that context to help fill in the gaps so that people don't have these hazy impressions based solely on partisan rhetoric. And yet, here we are. So how, what is your grade? Sorry to put you on the spot with your colleagues, but what is your grade for the media? Because isn't this the function of what they should be doing to avoid an outcome like this, where you have this kind of a polling result? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It's a funny question to respond to today when Miranda Devine of the New York Post actually attacked me personally and made all these allegations that I was a dishonest actor and so on and so forth, just because it is, I am already in this mindset of considering the role that the media plays in questions like this. To your point, certainly part of what the media is responsible for and the, that journalists and reporters and columnists like myself feel as though it is important to do is to present to the world an accurate 
representation of what's happening. That means necessarily butting heads with people like Miranda Devine, whose desired outcome is to present a particular version of what's happening in the world. And I've documented alternative in facts, as alternative facts, if you will, I've documented in the past ways in which she's misrepresented things to her audience. There are, I think, two issues at play here that prevent us from being able to do that. One is that there, there actually is, there are a lot of people within the media at the Washington Post and other outlets that are very assiduous about framing things in the context of the ongoing threat to democracy in terms of presenting the reality that James Comer, the House Oversight Committee, for example, is mis misrepresenting the amount of information he has tying Joe Biden to Hunter Biden, which of course, this is part of the right's playbook is to say, oh, there's this Biden crime family where the Biden part applies to Joe Biden, but the crime stuff almost exclusively in their presentation applies to his son, Hunter, and they've been unable to link those two things together. But there is a challenge in that the media is consistently chastised on those occasions when their coverage of what's happening in the world doesn't necessarily explicitly frame everything in, in these more dire representations of what's happening. If, for example, when you have the Republican debate that occurred last week, you aren't necessarily framing that as, oh, but what about the broader threat to democracy? So, okay, yes, we. the Washington Post has an entire desk that focuses on democracy and issues of threats to democracy, that we also at the same time are considering the actual electoral consequences of this debate does not mean that is not something we are familiar with. But that's, that is a criticism we get. I'm sensitive to that, you'll understand. The bigger issue is this. We have this entire right-wing ecosystem of people who, in a very self-reinforcing way, promote a false or misleading representation of what's happening in the world. And they have done a very good job of using the internet and using social media to police that. You know, for a long time, this simply meant that you would have right-wing columnists that would write to, to, to the Washington Post or other outlets and say, so-and-so isn't representing our issues fairly. And that led to a lot of this both sidesism that was a lot more common 10 years ago of, well, but the Republicans say that X happened and not necessarily useful context, things along those lines, but they've been really good at this. And so you have, for example, when I myself say, oh, these things aren't true, you have this entire universe of people who are willing to stand up and say, this guy's a liar. This guy's a scumbag. This guy is, this guy's full of it and attack me. And it's look, I've been doing this, as I said, a decade at the post alone. Like I'm used to these sorts of things, but it is this huge disincentive for other people to make that same challenge. One of the things the media is very bad at is defending ourselves. And I've written about this in the past. We are bad at saying, you know what, actually in broad strokes, we got the Russia collusion story. We presented accurate information that was actually later unearthed by Robert Mueller and presented things in a way, yes, there were absolutely people who were like, oh, Donald Trump was working directly for Russia. That's not what the actual media reporting said. And we got that story right. But we did a really bad job of defending that. And as such, people actually think that what the media said was, oh, that the dossier was accurate and there was collusion between Trump and Russia. And that's not what the actual reporting said. But we didn't do a good job of defending ourselves. And now we're seeing the same thing with everything. On this James Comer stuff, there aren't a lot of people who are challenging this. Aren't a lot of people who are paying attention to what Comer's saying, the bribery story that, that you elevated was very specifically about a particular bribe allegation that Comer made, which is just totally, there's no evidence for it beyond one document. And there's never been anything else added to it. But the right then distorts what I was arguing and says, oh, you say there's no bribe. And I was, well, I was making this one claim and you're not dealing with the fact or is misleading you and, and saying things that he can't defend. And, you know, that I'm the only voice out there. That's unfair. I'm sure there are other voices that, you know, that I am probably the most prominent voice out there making this argument means that I am then the one taking all these arrows. And again, the media is bad defending. This sounds very self-serving in my own right. Sounds like I'm saying, hey, media, help, help, help. This is the reality that they build this system 
so that if you step out on this, you instantaneously become the target of attack. I think just to follow up on this idea, it reminds me of the line from The Untouchables that the media has the same problem that the Democratic Party has, which is that you're bringing a knife to a gunfight here. You are abiding by a set of rules. This is Mark Jacobs' argument, former Chicago Tribune editor, is that we're the media, by which he means the mainstream media, sure. not Fox News, media, right? traditional mm -hmm. media, is playing by a traditional set of rules. And he does call out, look, there are some incentives that are bad here. People want access, people want relationships, people wanna be invited to the cocktail parties and people wanna be able to get quotes on the record from Republican sources. They don't want to appear partisan. The problem is that your counterparty here is not playing by the same set of rules. And this is what the Democratic Party has discovered over and over again as we've, and now I'm editorializing, but. I think the Democratic Party has tried to play by a traditional set of political rules and norms, and the Republican Party has no regard for them. It strikes me that what you're up against, you and I connected over Twitter, I refuse to call it X, because you went on another show and you got sandbagged by a couple of guys who wanted to prove that Hunter Biden bad something. And it just reminds me of that Colbert thing, that the facts have a well-known liberal bias. So I guess my the question that I'm winding my way around to is, I do think it's fair of you to say to yourself that about yourself that in some instances, you are a lonely voice trying to scream out like, hey, the emperor has no clothes here. We can go ahead and say that's okay. It doesn't make me biased. It doesn't make me partisan. But is it becoming impossible to do this job in the current ecosystem where you've got outlets like the Washington Post, the New York Times, and outlets that attempt to continue to carry the mantle of journalism as we've understood it up against the fact-free zones, the partisan, the Miranda Devines of the world who are playing by a different set of rules. And you've got to somehow engage in this asymmetric warfare. Is that even doable for you anymore? I will say that we certainly don't know what the solution is, right? We are disadvantaged in a number of ways. Fox News, for example, if you have a cable subscription, then you are paying them money, right? Like they're on your, you don't need, Fox News doesn't need to reach out to individual subscribers and say, please stick around with Fox News. They're part of a bundle that a lot of people pay for, whether or not they know it, right? That's an advantage that they have. The New York Post has a very different subscription model than the Washington Post. They're a tabloid. They sell them at the subway. And so Miranda Devine's, all of her articles are free. Mine are not. We, we are trying at the Washington Post to ensure that we can retain good on the ground reporters and they can do these important stories and it costs money and we have to put our articles behind a paywall in order to get people to, to pay for them. That's disadvantageous. Everyone can read when Jonathan Turley, the George Washington law professor attacks me, everyone can read that for free on a subject, right? And I, when I write about how he's misrepresenting facts in a case, it's a lot of people hit a paywall and then they don't read it. And then what they see is my tweet about it and then they react to it, right? So there are business reasons that there is a disadvantage here. And this whole, this holds not just for right-wing misinformation, this holds for misinformation broadly. Misinformation broadly is free and accurate information often costs money. And we don't know what the answer is. If we knew what the answer is, we wouldn't have any challenges and we'd be making good profits and never to be happy. We don't know what the answer is. And the challenge is that this is overlapping with a moment in which there is a real threat to what's the American experiment and that those two things are intertwined. And that's a problem. It's interesting. You're you're pointing out something about the media and how it works and social media and what's free and what's not that I 
I frankly hadn't really considered the notion that you've got to pay for good, you got to pay for good information, but the bad information is free makes an awful lot of sense. And in the context of the kind of crazy partisan divide where we've been talking about and partisan politics, you wrote a really interesting piece a couple of days ago in which you said even partisans hold surprisingly heterogeneous policy positions. Now, luckily, our audience, both on YouTube and on the podcasts, understands words like heterogeneous. And you showed that Americans are a lot more nuanced, a lot more mixed in what they actually believe than their partisan affiliations would suggest. Were you surprised by what you found about that? And how do you explain that in terms of the overwhelming sense in the media that we're in this complete, complete partisan divide in which there's a hard wall and nobody ever crosses it? One of the issues is that other research, including from Pew Research Center, has shown that the extent to which people are politically siloed has increased over time. And so there is a change. While it is the case, according to the analysis that I did with my colleague, Lenny Bronner, of what's called the CES, this poll that is taken around federal elections, that it's only like a third of Democrats and a third of Republicans hold the left or right wing positions on these six things that we looked at, which dealt with guns and abortion and the, the sort of the hot button topics, that most people weren't assiduously lined up with one or the other. If you had done this 30 years ago, though, and actually, I suppose we could go back and look at CS data. Maybe that's what I'll do later. But I guess CS has been taken over time. I suspect you would not see even the level of uh, alignment with partisanship that we see now, that it would have been different back then. I think I could say that pretty categorically. So part of it is just change, that we are now in a place where partisanship is more of an indicator. I think, too, that we tend over-represent the views of extreme partisans for a few reasons, including that they are more likely to be voters, and especially they're more likely to be primary voters. And therefore, if we are considering what happens in an election, it makes sense to consider more the people who are going to vote in that election who tend to be people who are more adherent to these more extreme views. But the problem, too, is that when people are making political decisions, when people are voting for candidates, they are, while the candidates themselves often like to say, I won because of my position on X, that's not usually the case. And A, people are usually voting by party. That's why party exists. So it's easier. You don't have to go and research, you know, what your stupid county commissioner, you know, what his views are on X, right? That's why you have a party. No offense to the county commissioner. I don't mean to call you stupid, but you get my point. That's part of the reason that party exists. But then secondarily, you have the situation in which by having this more variegated understanding of these key issues, you really see so that when people are making the decisions at the ballot box, it's not one of those things or another one of those things necessarily that's driving what they're doing. And so while it is the case that they don't necessarily have the same six positions as everyone else in their party, it is the case that party is the determiner of how they're going to vote, if yeah, that makes I sense. Just to editorialize for a second, one of the things that has struck me is the separation between people's policy positions and their political affiliation and the degree to which we, we no longer see quite as much of a connection. But there used to be some kind of consistency, some kind of intellectual consistency in the positioning of the parties. I think that's gone out the window, especially driven by Donald Trump. And it, just to your point, having run campaigns before, I agree that politicians tend to think, oh, I take this position and that will get me, especially Democrats, we're really prone to this. It's I need to have this position because that's what the voters support. I don't think it works that way. The best political cartoon I ever saw 
showed a guy saying this was a generation ago i like george w bush because his father was president i liked his father because he was ronald reagan's vice president i liked ronald reagan because he was in movies and the final panel says I like movies. And I think that's the political reasoning that most people apply. Okay, editorializing done. Following up on Paul's question, I want to promote your newsletter a little bit. I very much believe in your earlier point. Hey, people pay for media, like pay for good media, not mm. crap media. So I, I pay for the Washington Post. I want you to as well. By the way, this show is largely ad supported. So you can help us by that and subscribe and leaving ratings and reviews. We also have a Patreon. You can you can support us by paying a little bit there too. All right, your newsletter, which is really entertaining, really and fun, free, free, and free for nerds. It's called How to Read This Chart. You you dissect charts mm -hmm. and you're constantly pouring over data in general in what you do. In the last year or two, do you have a moment that you can think of where you saw a new chart, a new piece of data, and mm -hmm. something really jumped out to you and changed your perception of something, really changed mm -hmm. your yeah. thinking about something? This is difficult because, as you say, I see a lot of charts, right? And a lot of charts I put in the newsletter. And I guess I can say, oh, man, I don't know. This is a real stomp the chart moment. What's the thing that really shook me to the core? I don't know. I see a lot of charts. There's a lot of good charts. The newsletter each week features visualizations and charts and maps and things that, that I think really make a good point. And unfortunately, I have recency bias. And so I can think of one last week, which showed that the average percent that people are paying on their mortgage now among all homeowners is, you know, what? 3%, something like that. Whereas a new mortgage is 7%. And the gap between those two things is the largest it's been since the 1980s, which obviously tells us a lot about the current state of the real estate market. That was a fascinating chart. And it, it was a very good representation of the point they're trying to make. Is it the most important thing I've seen in the past month? No, probably not. But it's one that, that strikes me in the moment. So that'll be my answer. Final answer. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I want to talk about your book which I confess I haven't read, but I want to read because it seems particularly apt for me. You wanted to dive into what the end of the baby boom means for American politics and economics. I really identify with this. In 2010, I was a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate, fat middle-aged guy running against Kelly Ayotte, who put out ads of running through the woods in a tracksuit. There was no contest, right? It was a bad year, but here I was, an aging baby boomer, up against the, the I don't know, I won't insult Kelly Ayotte too much. but She's Gen X. Yeah, she was the Barbie of the Republican Party. The but greatest, I, the, she's part of the true greatest generation. Yeah, the true greatest. Anyway, so give us a few nuggets here. Sure. What does the end of the baby boom, at, let's call it the gentle aging of the sure. baby boom, what does it mean for a, for our country? Well, I think it is the end of the baby boom from the standpoint, the lens through which the book is written, which is power. And one of the things, when I started out on the book, one of the things I quickly realized is that I myself, and therefore presumably a lot of other people, really underestimated the scale of the baby boom. And so the data point I like to use is that in 1945, before the boom began at the end of World War II, there were about 140 million people living in America. Over the course of the next 19 years, almost 70, I think 76 million babies were born. That's more than 50% of the entire population of the country. And it's not as though this is like new immigration where it's just people coming in all age groups. This is all people under the age of 20, definitionally, right? So you have this massive surge in this new population of really young people that forces America to reorient 
everything. The economy, who are you marketing to? They become teenagers. Suddenly teenagers are the key economic engine for the country in a lot of ways, right? You have to build schools for them. You have to hire teachers. They go, they reach college age. There's not enough jobs for them. There, there simply isn't enough to do. Their college attendance starts to spike, right? You start seeing, okay, we got all these kids. We got this war in Vietnam. Let's, let's the way you kill two working blue birds and one stone, so to speak, right? There, there are all these ways in which the baby boom as it aged forced America to reckon with the scale of the baby boom. But then they reached working age and they were adults and they were just became America and it was just normal America. And so we forgot this lesson that everything had to be readjusted every time the baby boomers reach this milestone until we reached the milestone where they started hitting retirement age. And that occurred about a decade ago, as I mentioned earlier, the peak year was last year in terms of the number of births in the baby boom. So now we're really in the middle of this new adjustment where America is becoming much older because of the scale of the baby boom and reconciling with what it means that the baby boom, for example, is much wider than the rest of the population. The baby boom started in that lull between after the 1920s anti-immigrant laws were passed and when they were loosened in the late 1960s, the baby boom generation itself is very immigrant light compared to both the generations before and after. It is much more densely white than other generations, particularly younger generations. There are all sorts of ways in which you can instantly see how this overlaps with American politics. Why is the Republican Party so hard on immigration? Why is there so much white grievance politics that works so well in the Republican Party? Why are they so focused on issues that really bolster what baby boomers in particular are worried about? It's because that's their constituencies. That's who they are. And there's a lot of power in it. One of the things Donald Trump recognized after 2012, Mitt Romney gets beaten by Barack Obama. The GOP puts together this thing. We got to figure out what we're going to do. We got we have this new multi-generational and very diverse coalition coming up. How do we appeal to them? Let's figure out how the Republican Party can do that. And what Donald Trump steps forward and says is, actually, there's a lot more power to be wrung from older white people. Let's do that. And this wasn't grand political strategy on his party, just that's who he was. And so he understood that there was an appeal to be made. And that's what happened. And so now what we're in is we're in this moment of turbulence, both economically and politically, and of course, socially, since the, those two things are intertwined, that prior to my book had been considered, and obviously I don't want to represent the book, but I think the book really distills how we're in this moment and then looks at, okay, now that we recognize we're in this moment of turbulence, how is that turbulence resolved? And so the second half of the book is looking forward and trying to anticipate ways in which it might resolve, but leaves open a lot of questions. Just to tie in some of the generational and demographic trends that you just brought up with some of sure. our larger discussion, I have to point out that you attended the greatest state university in America, the Ohio State University. And I, I say that in the home of UMass Amherst. So I'm going to have to apologize to all my neighbors after this. One of the charges that's been leveled at the media is that they exhibit liberal bias because the journalists themselves disproportionately are young millennial types. They are themselves liberal and they disproportionately attended, let's say, um, more ivory tower colleges mm -hmm. and universities. Are you finding that? Are you finding you work with a tar Is that true? Or do you stand out among your colleagues at one of the flagship media institutions in the world that they are young millennial and ivory tower elite types? I honestly don't know. I'm disadvantaged here just because I live and work in New York. And so I only know a lot of my colleagues online in the way that you know them. And I, I don't know a lot of my colleagues that well. So it's hard for me to say. It certainly is the case that when you look at the media universe and some of the prominent voices that you do have, uh, what I would call an overrepresentation of the Ivy. So I think that's fair. I am, I'm a proud state school attendee, as you mentioned. And I think there's real value in having gone to a state school. Like literally, I like, I don't mean to disparage just the Ivy Leagues. And obviously there's value in an Ivy League education. But I think there's, there is a different sort of value in not having gone to an Ivy. 
Ivy League and going to a, a college like Ohio State or even, God forbid, UMass, which my best friend went to. So I will I'll just get that jive in. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think that to some extent, this is also a representation of the ways in which, of course, there actually is a an elite class in the United States that that overvalues, I think, an Ivy League education. And that overlaps with things like when you are at the Washington Post. And if you are hiring for someone who's going to be your new intern and you have someone that graduated from Harvard with a journalism degree, I don't know if Harvard has a journalism degree, I don't care if they do or not, or someone who graduated from whatever, the University of Missouri with a similar degree, there's this bias toward, I got this Harvard person as well. And I don't think that's fair. And I think there are ways in which there is there are biases that contribute to who gets to attend Harvard. I don't think I need to back that up. I think it's pretty well established. But yeah, I think that does play a role. I will say though, that at the Washington Post, I have not noticed that a lot of my colleagues are snooty, stuffy, bow tie wearing jerks who talk about the Yoke Club all the time. Are there some? Yeah, maybe. Hey, I went to Ohio State, so there's some of us too. All right, let's get you out of here on this. I had an opportunity to try and stump you before, but now you're forewarned. You're ready. Mm. All right. You so, so you, you think the 15 second forewarning really is going to make the difference here? Yes, yes. I'm giving you time to mentally <laughs> prep for what's coming. Great which which team. I don't know what it is, but okay. Uh, yes, yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> I'm just making it sound like I'm being. That's fair. fine. Right. That's fair. You specialize in mm. unearthing facts, data putting them together in patterns. By the way, you alluded before, this is total sidebar, you alluded before to the fact that you have done a tremendous amount of work putting together the picture of the Russia collusion story, what the media did say, what they did not say. I just wanna thank you for that. It's been incredibly valuable. I go to your work on this topic all the time. So thank, thank you for that. All right, in the midst of all of your doing this fact digging, what fact or data point do you wish Americans knew and understood better? Obviously, I just broadly wish people were better at understanding data when it's presented to them. That's that was the genesis. Like, that's why you have a newsletter, was, man. That's exactly right. No, but it is. I wanted. I would always get. I don't know how to read this chart. It's okay. I'll spend two seconds thinking about it. But that's why I created the newsletter to have a fun intro into. Look, these things are not hard if you just know what you're looking for. And so it tries to give them a sense of what they're looking for. Obviously, I already mentioned the fact the scale of the baby boom, which was important from the standpoint of understanding the context of the book. I will answer this in the abstract. I think that there is a broad misunderstanding about the extent to which there is an integration of the media with power structures in the United States. And I think that it is obviously true that there are people who have close relationships with people in positions of power. I think it is obviously true as well that sometimes those relationships color coverage in a way that is not useful. I don't, I literally, if pressed for an example right in this moment, I couldn't provide one. I'm sure others would be happy to chime in with some. But I think that there is this misunderstanding about who the media is. I, I went, I grew up as a single mother and my sister went to a state school. I ended up at the Washington Post through the back door. My dad's actually a sports writer, but I never anticipated that I would end up doing this. There are a lot of people in the media who are not elites. I don't, you mentioned I live in New York. I don't live in New York City. I live outside of New York City. Like I, I couldn't put to live in New York City. <laughs> it's crazy, right? That while I have been entrusted with some modicum of power to be able to say things to people, which I appreciate and value. It is not the case that I am a particularly powerful person or that I come from a background of wealth and power. And I think that there is a misunderstanding and a, a tendency to assume that people who work for institutions like the New York Times or the Washington Post come from a place that we don't necessarily come from. And obviously part of this response is rooted in your last question. But I do think that it's, it is important to realize that, that 
and I'm not going to say this about myself because that's overly self-serving, but that, that most people in the media really just want to understand what's happening in the world to present that to, to, to people. And that there are certainly cultural biases that come into play with that as there are with anything else, but that as a general rule, that I think people deserve more of a break than they get. And that the default assumption that they're cozy with power. I've had so many people who've been like, oh, you only say that because you want to retain your access. I have no access. What are you talking about? Oh, literally. I, I know no one in Washington. I live in New York. I, if I wanted to go to the White House, I'd have to sign up for a White House tour. It's just, that's, it's just, it's silly. And I think that it is useful for people to remember that the media is constituted of people who are doing their best to try and present the world as they think it exists. And that the media, unlike people like Miranda Devine, that I am held to account by the Washington Post and by others. And that I, if I make a mistake, I have to correct it. And it hurts. And like, that's part of the process too. And, and I just, the census is all focused on the media in part because I've made it focused on the media. I think that's a, a decent lesson to take away. That doesn't answer your question at all. I will totally acknowledge that. You that's wanted a data great. point and I hey, wanted a stupid little rant. What would happen if you gave that answer in a press conference is that Philip Bump of the Washington Post would write a deconstruction of it. And yeah, like Donald Trump's tarmac comments, like you did this wonderful, <laughs> hey, look, if people want to sure. understand the between the lines reading and the facts and the context, understand the world a little bit better, pay a little money, shell out, subscribe to the Washington Post so that you can read Philip Bump three or four times a freaking weekday, which is absolutely amazing. You can also subscribe for free to How to Read This Chart, which is a lot more interesting than it sounds, even if you're not a data nerd. I think that's and true. I think that's true. It is definitely interesting. And finally, you can pick up the aftermath, the last days of the baby boom and the future of power in America. Philip Bump, thanks so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. You bet. Happy birthday.